Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. Here you will find Dr. Cindy Elliser and Kat McKeever, researchers at Pacific Mammal Research, talking all about marine mammals. We will have a variety of ways to share information with you through discussing research articles and news stories, interviews with other researchers, and more. Join us to learn more about marine mammals and have some fun. Welcome to the Pac-Man podcast. Uh, I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And this week, we are going to be talking about another publication, uh, one that recently came out just a couple weeks ago. I think like two weeks ago, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, really excited about. Um, we actually knew about this study uh, starting because uh, one of our colleagues was leading it. Um, and so we learned about it a couple of years ago when she was fundraising for it and um, trying to look into uh, into this. So it's really exciting that we get to read about the paper and see what they found out. Plus, it's just a really cool paper. Spoiler alert. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is. And don't worry, like, I'm going to read the name of it. And then there's going to be a lot of microbiology stuff, but we're, we're not going to go into super depth on that because <laughs> we're not microbiologists. Um, no. Another we'll spoiler you, alert. We're not microbiologists. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll tell you the results. And that's the most important. So um, this was in Oceans, uh, Ocean, uh, Journal Oceans, and it's antibiotic resistance of bacteria in two marine mammal species, harbor seals and harbor porpoises, living in an urban marine ecosystem, the Salish Sea, Washington State, USA. And it is by Stephanie Norman et al. So there's quite a few um, contributors to this paper, uh, mm -hmm. but Stephanie is the lead author. So we're gonna be talking about, basically this is an effect of humans <laughs> on marine mammals. Uh, and it's it's this, the results are really interesting uh, and yeah. kind of scary at the same yeah. time. Yeah, it was honestly like I was getting like, I don't know, I was sort of oscillating between like, wow, that's amazing. And then being really creeped out at the same time, right. all the well, way through the reading this. <laughs> the implications yeah. of what this mm -hmm. means is really much larger than the fact that they're, they found antibiotic resistant bacteria in marine mammals. Yeah. So let's get into that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, first of all, do we want to discuss like what antibiotic resistance actually is just for people who aren't aware of that? That's a good idea, right? So um, basically you have little bacteria, little microbes, and we have antibacterial drugs that are revolutionized healthcare back in the day uh, and are really good at killing them. But over time with overuse, not using all of your antibiotics to the point, you know, not finishing your dosage, uh, that you were, are given from the doctor um, and other factors, the bacteria are able to, it's like an evolutionary arms race. They're like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, you can kill me, but you can't kill me. And so therefore I'm going to survive and then reproduce and pass on those genes and give those to future bacteria that become more and more resistant to particular uh, antibacterial drugs. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, the end, exactly. yeah. So the end, you can get one that is resistant to everything. So I'm sure most of you have already heard about this. It's a pretty common discussion, especially when, you know, when talking about, uh, you know, slightly more worrying bacterial infections where they are still needing to use antibiotics, but the antibiotics are becoming less and less effective at treating these illnesses. Right. And so the most common one that probably everybody's heard of, even if you don't know what it means, is MRSA. Mm -hmm. So M MRSA, uh, it's like methylamicillin resistant um staphylococcus yeah staphylococcus or really or something like that um but that's one that you mainly find in hospitals and it's really bad like you, you, the antibiotics just don't work so if you get that 
it, it can be that, you know, you can be treated and it can go away, but sometimes it doesn't and it can kill you. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's worrisome because antibiotic resistance, if it continues to grow in the way that it is, we could end up with very um, basic illnesses that cannot be cured anymore. That before you just get take antibiotics and you're fine. Yeah. And all of a sudden now you're not. Right. So it's a bad, it's a bad health issue for humans along with every all other animals, but in particular, people care about this because of humans. So, right. um, okay. so something to keep in, in mind here when we're talking about the paper is that this has large impacts on human health, not just marine mammals or marine ecosystems right. at all. Um, I wanted to, to, to define two other terms too. One is zoonotic. So oh, yeah, yeah. Zoonotic means that a a particular pathogen, right, something that causes disease, whether that be virus or bacteria or whatever, um, that that zoonotic means that it can transfer to a different species. So most of the time, pathogens are like, I like harbor seals, and that's all I like, um, mm -hmm. or dogs, or people, or whatever. Um, but some of them are able to switch species, and those are the ones you want to worry about because then they could transfer that pathogen into, say, humans, or we could pass for it to animals. Right. Like yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, and the last one is enteric. Well, uh, well, that will come up a couple times, but um, basically that has to do with uh, it's a type of a group of bacteria um, and entera. Um, that was it. It was it comes from the Greek, uh, which means intestine. <laughs> so um, when you hear about people talking about like enteroviruses or right. like that's your kind of gastrointestinal tract. Yeah, part. they named it like you can find them other places, but they that's their natural their natural habitat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's so weird. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I thought put that like natural habitat. Well, I guess that's true, but it just sounds weird. Right. Okay. So that I think that covers the basics of uh we'll, we'll define a few other things as we go, but those are the kind of the, the big things you need to remember as we go. Yeah, excellent point. Yes. So um so just to, to introduction, um you know, where the stuff is coming from is basically wastewater uh, and runoff. Mm -hmm. So that carries, so we, you've probably heard of it, of, you know, don't flush stuff down your toilet, you know, uh, like drugs and stuff like that, um, because it can get into the water and then that does eventually drain out into the air, um, into the surrounding waters. And some things are filtered out and other things aren't depending on how good the sewage system, you know, the, um, how they, What's the word? Are they how filtered? they treat the tr wastewater oh, yeah. treatment. Yeah. So how you know what what those get taken out. Um, but so I think you, you, we all kind of think about the the drugs maybe going out there, but I, I kind of didn't think about also the actual bacteria going out there. Mm -hmm. so, and the thing is too is it's not just even flushing things down your toilet. Like a lot of this stuff goes just through your waste and your right. like it stays in your if you're if you're going pee. That and that will that will be transferred through the wastewater system out to the oceans, and so right. if there are any bacteria in that, they will also be transferred out there. And super important too is that we're, we're talking about animals as well. So domestic animals that you know your dog or cat yeah. that you put an, on antibiotics, well, they go out and poop outside, and that can then get washed out with you know anything else. And agriculture, that's another big one, is agriculture. Mm -hmm. So you know uh, cows and and chickens and stuff and other other domestic animals that we use for food, uh, oftentimes are heavily used they heavily use antibiotics there to keep mm -hmm. the animals healthy for human consumption. Um, but that then gets transferred down uh, right. in their waste as well. Um, so that's where they're, that's where they're, they're getting it and how it's getting to the marine mammals in the first place. 
Right. Um, and I thought something that was really important that they noted was that um, they've they found antibiotic resistant bacteria uh, in multiple marine species. However, most wild animals have never been directly exposed to antibiotics. So that was terrifying to me. Like, I know, wow. right? So usually it's like really okay, it becomes resistant because you're taking the antibiotics and then, you know, like I said before, you take antibiotics, some of them are still surviving. And if enough of those do survive after you finish your antibiotics, those ones are that are resistant, you know, they were able to survive. So then those, you know, reproduce and pass on their genes. So the, it's usually in the in terms of it gets created by the use of antibiotics in the evolutionary arms race. But these animals have never been treated with antibiotics. Right. And so like, I mean, that's the thing they're, they're getting all of that from the waste runoff pretty much. Right. Yeah. It's, or, it's, or, it's, you know, passed on from other animals who then have been exposed in their environment. Exactly. So it's, it's environmental uptake, you know, where it comes from varies, but it's, it's in the environment. And so therefore they're, it's getting into them. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So super crazy. Um, so, and the, the, the issue with this is like, okay, well, they get antibiotic resistant bacteria um, and that can cause damage to the animals, right? So they can become sick um, and uh, which is not good for them, first of all, <laughs> there's that. Um, but what's also important is that if they're there, you know, they got transferred from somewhere terrestrial to these marine mammals, well, they can also then share these antibiotic resistant bacteria, uh, bacteria with other animals. Including potentially humans. Right, we can share it back. Like, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> back to us. So what I, this is the cool thing I wanted to, this is a small dip into the microbiology world, but um, <laughs> how, how these, uh, the resistant genes that are in these bacteria can actually get passed to other bacteria. And mm -hmm. so, which is crazy, right? So that another bacteria that has never been exposed to these antibiotics could get this gene and now be resistant to the antibiotic, which is without having to go through the whole evolutionary arms race to get right. there. So there's three ways that this can happen. Um, the first and most common one, uh, I believe is the most common one is called conjugation. And so because bacteria are, they basically make copies of themselves over and over again. That's why they can grow so quickly. Um, it's, you know, usually you think of genes passing on to offspring, mm -hmm. um, but uh, cell, th these guys can basically meet up with another one and be like, hey, what's up? And they have these little circular uh, things called plasmids that have um, DNA. It's a, it's they they're separate from the main DNA that the bacteria has, um, and they can be like, well, here here's a plasmid. It's got some really cool genes in it. Have some fun. And they just give that information. <laughs> they have a plasmid them. party. Right, exactly. So they're like, hey, this one's super awesome. I love this antibiotic resistant gene. It's great. Here you go. Have it. And so now they can so they can share basically. That information with more bacteria that will then now have that um, uh, that resistant gene. Um, they can they can it's called transformation, and they can actually take DNA directly from the environment. I didn't really realize that's that's like nuts to my yeah. brain. I'm just like, what? They're so, so cool. Bacteria are just so cool. Well, and it's why they're around everywhere, and they're you know they yep. can survive almost anything. So the, yep. if it, like a, another bacteria lysed open, like it died, it's like. Well, the other bacteria can be like, ooh, it's like picking something up in a game, you know, and you're like, mm, loot gets mm -hmm. dropped. Yeah. <laughs> so it gets some loot of an antibiotic bacterial resistant gene. Good point. And then 
The last one has to do with other pathogens, uh, viruses. So there are viruses that only attack bacteria and they're called bacteriophages. Um, and they can uh, transfer little bits of bacterial DNA to other bacteria when they infect it. Right. And I could go into more detail with that, but I don't think I will. <laughs> that's probably, that's probably good. I think that's, that now we all kind of understand like the basics of how this could get passed on. Right. So, so it's not even just that that's happening and those particular animals are going to be hurt. It's the fact that now it can, it has a much wider spread and can spread to many other species of bacteria, other species of animals, and can also be brought back to people. Yeah. So, um, so they, they call it, the, it's basically becoming a reservoir for this, these antibacterial species and genes that can then mm -hmm. be spread. Um, so, and the, the last thing in the, in the introduction before we get into the methods, which will be really short because we're going to gloss it. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to summarize that real nicely for you. I have like three notes on that and the rest of it, like, <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, is that uh, preliminary work shows that uh, they've, in, in, in some places, uh, and in, I believe this was in the Sailor Sea, um, stranded and rehabilitated harbor seals, they found mm -hmm. um, these species uh, in, in them. And then also in orcas and from their feces. Okay, fine, totally get that. But also their breath. Right, which means it's in their lungs. Yeah, well, I just thought it was so cool. Like, yeah, like a breath sample and there's, there's bacteria. Mm -hmm. crazy. crazy. So cool. So anyway, they have, um, they've, they've found them in certain species. And so it's just really important that we continue to look into this and see, you know, if there's differences between species and that's what they were looking at here is looking at harbor porpoises and harbor seals. Right, um, which very, very conveniently is exactly what we study at Pac-Man. So this was another reason why this paper was exceptionally exciting. Cause it's like, wait a second, that's both of our target species. Awesome. And yeah, we cool. have a little bit of an extra love for porpoises. And so there yeah. was, you know, as we talk about here in the, um, in, the, in the paper that porpoises are maybe a little bit more susceptible to this. So good thing to understand. Um, yeah. So they looked at these mainly because, and there was, I forgot where it was. They had um, a why. Yeah. So why do they look at these two species in particular? Um, they both occur in the Salish Sea in the greatest numbers compared to other marine mammal species. Um, they're just everywhere. They're, the populations are doing well as, as well. Mm -hmm. um, they generally tend to stay more localized without traveling great distances compared to the ones that are on the, on the outer coast. So these are kind of like, we're going to stay in this one area. So it might give you an idea of geographical uh, uh, exposure. Right, right, because they are more resident. Right, uh, and, and in particular resident to smaller areas versus the entire Salish Sea. Right. Um, and they're most likely to carry antibiotic resistant bacteria because uh, originating from terrestrial sources because they're, um, th because they don't go very far, right? And right. right, it's harbor porpoise and harbor seal because they basically live right next to land all the time compared to say orcas. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the big key here, the difference between these two that's interesting to be able to look at is that harbor porpoises are fully aquatic their whole time is spent in the water. Yeah. And harbor seals are semi-aquatic. So they spend time on land. So is there a difference between those two? Right. And if you think about it, because we are talking about runoff into the marine environment, mm -hmm. you're talking about levels of exposure, basically, is what that's looking at. So the harbor porpoise as a fully aquatic species is exposed 100% of the time. Right. Right. Where the harbor seals are exposed only pot potentially only when they're in the water. And does that make a difference or not? So that was a really cool. I really like that they brought that mm -hmm. in there. I thought that was pretty 
a really interesting distinction, especially when we get to the results, you'll see why that's really important to, to take note of. Right. And to, to equate it to something today, you know, in the day of COVID, unfortunately, um, you know, it would be like your exposure to somebody who has a virus, if you were in a room with them for three hours versus mm -hmm. in a room with them for 15 minutes, you know, yeah. you're more likely to catch it being in the room for three hours than you are for 15 minutes. So that yeah, exposure exactly. time is important. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh, so they did the whole sea list. Um, it was opportunistic, right? Because they're it's stranded animals that they're using. <laughs> so they can't be like, we're going to strand you. <laughs> right. That would be unethical. <laughs> just a little bit, just a little, a little bit. bit. <laughs> a little bit. So they did it over two years though. And whatever, basically whatever stranded, that's why there's uh, quite a few more Harbor seals, har Harbor seals in this than Harbor porpoises. Cause Harbor mm -hmm. seals are, are, they're more likely to strand, especially pups and things like that. Um, they used fresh dead animals, uh, and the, they basically did two, they basically did North and South. So if you know the area, everything above the Southern tip, tip of Whidbey, right above Hood Canal and up, including the San Juan Islands and Southern waters, that's North. And then everything below that, including Hood Canal and Southern and Puget Sound, um, is South. Yeah. So yeah. Pretty broad, just North and South, no small yeah. variations. But I thought that was interesting why they kind of split it up like that. So I think the rationale was basically that the, the southern section is, is a little bit more industrialized. It typically has a greater population density with Seattle and Tacoma right down there. Um, Olympia. We, yeah, and Olympia. We do have the naval base on Whidbey Island. So there's mm -hmm. a little bit more um, from that. But typically the northern section that they delineated does have a slightly lower population density. And so basically right. the, the, the point of looking at these two different areas was also to basically like, is this something to do with the number of people in the area or not? Right, um, can, you, can you correlate so, it with sure. that, that part? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's obviously because it's, it's coming from terrestrial sources. So you would think that, you know, the Southern might be more polluted than the upper, but you know, the mm -hmm. waters also move around a lot. So that's right. an important right. thing to understand. Um, so where they got this, uh, they generally were looking at enteric bacteria, they just said intestines. So in order to do that, they had to take rectal swabs, which sounds, I mean, good thing the animals that are sounds dead because- so enjoyable. Right, so, but they're dead, they don't care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of morbid, but hey. Um, and so they would take rectal swabs either of, uh, of the animals at the stranding site, or they would um, take them during the necropsy from the actual intestines. Um, and then they also took them from lesions that they noted to see if there was, you know, pathogenic bacteria there. Mm -hmm. um, I like where they where there was very specific. They like they were very careful when they did the insertion of the rectal swab, <laughs> not to get any of the surrounding outside hair or other thing because you you only want what's happening inside. Yeah, which I mean, and that is one thing to note. I mean, like I said, we're not going to go into you know huge amount of detail with the methodology part, but. It is really important to note that, especially when you're dealing with any kind of like microbiology or genetic mm -hmm. biology, any kind of that stuff, like you have to be so careful in your methodology. So just, yeah. you know, the fact that we're not going to speak about it a ton is not because there's not a lot of really great information there. It's just that it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> so. Well, and again, like if you, you have bacteria all over your hands right now. So if yeah. you're not careful, you could put it in there and then be like, oh, we found all this. Like, no, that was from your hand, not from the yeah. actual swab. It's really important. And yeah. links back to our podcast episode about the microplastics, the same, yes. same kind of idea where you have to make sure that the microplastics that you're looking at are from the thing that you want, not from the surrounding environment. Yeah. 
Yeah, so very important. Sure. And this is why I'm not a microbiologist because right? <laughs> I just can do it. Nope. It's very interesting, but um, so they, so they, there's, okay. So there's millions of bacteria, right? So which ones do you look for? That's the question. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. So they were looking spe specifically for bacterial species that are of interest to marine mammal, terrestrial and humans and other marine animals like fish. So that's why they, I think they, they went for those enteric um, uh, pathogens uh, and that they are, those are ones that we would be worried about for us and also other, you know, animals and whatnot. Right. So right. we can't look for everything. So let's look for some of the ones that would be the most dangerous, basically. Right. So for example, one of the ones that they looked for was E. coli. For example, so yeah, there's I, you know, what? I kind of hate E. coli because you said, "Ooh, E. coli, bad." But there's so many good E. coli. There's so many different types. That's of e. true. It is, yeah. That's so true. there's some that are that you need in your body, and then there's some that you don't, and some that are terrible, and some that are fine. And it's like right. uh, it's a little misleading. You, seriously, gosh darn E. coli. <laughs> um, so that's basically they looked at all that, and there's a whole bunch of microbiology that went in that over my head. Uh, so we're not going to talk about, um, they did a lot of tests and statistics and all this stuff and did very good work. Um, the only thing else I wanted to mention about the methods is that, so when they grow the bacteria, um, they put it on what's called agar plates. And these are basically mm -hmm. just new, like it's nutrient goo that you, you swab and see if you can grow bacteria on. So you just swab mm -hmm. it and then you put it in an incubator, uh, cause they like warm spaces, uh, and then see what colonies grow. So you're looking at the shape and the the amount and and morphology so uh, of what the bacterial colonies are to determine what what bacteria there are and then there's other tests that they can do to narrow it down but um long story short the there's a lot of different types of agar and i had never heard of this one before they have one with sheep's blood on it and and this other stuff like seemingly normal i guess i don't know i think sheep's blood on agar seems normal to me for that they had a chocolate agar I know. Wasn't that crazy? It's like, what? Bacteria like chocolate? <laughs> Ew. I, mean, I like I chocolate. <laughs> I assume they're actually talking about chocolate, but you know, I don't know something special about chocolate. Right. If yeah. anyone has any insight on that and wants to leave us a comment, let us know if we're missing something on that one. Right, but I, I like, also read it as chocolate. And I'm like, wait yeah. a second. I'm like, maybe there's some super secret <laughs> name here that we're not getting, but I thought that was oh. cool. <laughs> All right. So on to the results. They had 74 harbor seals and 21 harbor porpoises. Like I said, harbor seals are going to be more common um, stranding because they, they go on land too. So they might just mm -hmm. die on land and there you go versus a porpoise, which would have to wash up on shore. Right. 89% um, of them, uh, they were able to isolate bacteria from. So the thing is here, they could swab. And then even though there may be bacteria there, if the swab that they got didn't have enough cells to be able to, or healthy cells, in order to grow um, more bacteria on the agar plates, then they may not see it because right. it just didn't grow. Like they, the only way they can see what bacteria are there is if they can grow colonies of it. So 89% ha had isolates that they could see uh, and they could um, create um, colonies from, and that included 31 different species. Right. That's a lot, That's I, a I lot. think at least. I mean, well, <laughs> there's millions of bacteria, so maybe it's a tiny fraction, I don't know. Uh, but the, uh, so um, overall, the big the big answer here is that thirty seven percent were resistant to at least one antibiotic the of the the species that they um, the isolates that they were able to pull, uh, and twenty six percent were resistant to greater than one, so multi 
multi-resistant yep. bacteria. Um, and so that is a fairly high number, right? You should, we really shouldn't have any resistant bacteria. <laughs> right, especially when you've never been directly exposed to exactly. these antibiotics, right? So right. that's the other thing that we have to remember here is it's not like they've, you know, they've had <laughs> doses right. We've of given them doses of it. Right. right, these are wild animals. They've never been exposed to this before. So that was pretty staggering just right there to see that mm -hmm. consist consistency across the board. Yeah, like over a third, over a third yeah. of the yeah. animal sampled. Uh, and again, and those maybe we're missing some of those too that didn't that mm -hmm. didn't come out. Maybe it's a little bit higher. You know, this is a representation of what's out there, but it may not be exactly what's out there because we just don't know. Yeah. Um, so uh, they, but was really interesting, and this is why we hinted before of poor porpoises, um, and they are near and dear to our hearts. Uh, harbor porpoises, fifty-two percent of them were resistant to one, and only thirty-five percent were resistant to one in harbor seals. Right. So harbor porpoises are, are much more susceptible to getting having getting these back these antibiotic resistant bacteria for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um which is not good. Right. And that was a significant difference, by the way. So there was yes. like when they ran the statistics, there was actually a st statistically significant difference between seals and porpoises right. in terms of the number of isolates that displayed resistance. Yeah, and they put that, that basically harbor porpoises were three times more likely to have at least one antibiotic resistant bacteria. Yeah, um, which is pretty to, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so again, that it's that, you know, possibly goes to that immersion factor, right? They're in the water all the time. So if it's in the water, they're gonna be exposed to it longer than harbor seals are. Right. Um, the majority of the uh, bacteria that they found were also gram negative. And so gram negative, gram positive is basically how we test for types. It's, it's about, it has to do with what's in their cell wall. It's called peptidoglycan. Mm -hmm. uh, and how you stain it, um, how it gets stained, whether it's positive or negative, depending on the color that it, that it creates once you do the staining. Um, they're just, just, that's how one way that they classify different types of bacteria. Um, and generally, now this, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule, but generally gram-negative bacteria are the bad ones. They are the ones that cause disease. They are pathogenic. They're the ones you don't want to have. Gram-positive is more associated with like probiotics and things like that. Right. Yeah. Good point. That's a really important distinction to make. Yeah. And I, I don't think that, I, I think it has happened to be that the positive ones are actually kind of positive in nature and the negative <laughs> ones are negative. I don't think that actually was why they named it that way, but um, but yeah, 87% of the bacteria that they looked at were gram negative. So right. large amount. And that's a good point to, to, to look at too, is that I ask my students all the time. I'm like, do you think bacteria are all bad or not? And they're not, because if they were, we would all be dead. Yep. Because <laughs> there's bacteria everywhere. Right. So if they were all out to get us, we, it, life just wouldn't really be able to be happening. And there's lots of bacteria that you need in your gut, you know, and, and in your mouth and on your hands that help you. Um, so the fact that 87% of these bacteria were all gram negative, the bad ones is significant, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the last thing in the results is they had, uh, there was a, a, a not significant, but there were two spatial clusters where um, they had a particular resistance, um, I think multi-resistance in the um, central and southern um, areas. So in the central, uh, I believe it was on Whidbey, they had mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Uh, and then down south, I think more towards Olympia. Yeah. 
Um, so that was interesting. And, and those are the things where it's like, okay, well, it's not statistically significant, but it doesn't mean that it's not important. Right, those kinds of trends are actually still very important to take note of. Right, because it may be a trend and it, maybe it's an actual thing, but they just don't have the statistics, you know, they don't have enough samples to show significance, but it still um, is something that is there. Right. And then the only other one um, before we move on to, to mm -hmm. talk about is just the fact that there was also differences among age classes. Yes. So mm -hmm. they did they did find a difference both in harbor porpoises and in harbor seals that the um, there was a difference between juveniles um, compared to say pups or calves um, in mm -hmm. terms of which ones displayed resistance. Um, so that was kind of interesting to know that there is actually like differences in what age class of animal is more susceptible to these mm -hmm. antibiotic resistant bacteria. And it's really important because if, it, okay, calves are fine and pups, but then all of a sudden as they juveniles, maybe they're just gaining more of it. So, or, or there's something about their, what they're doing at that time in their lives that they become mm -hmm. more susceptible to these. Uh, right. So that, it goes into how we can protect them later in life from, you know, or how we can help to help them. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was like, it was very interesting too, that it was specifically juveniles that like, yeah. it wasn't adults. It was actually like the, the ones who were kind of in between in age range mm -hmm. seemed to be the most at risk for, for these types of um, antibiotic resistant bacteria. So that was just right. really interesting too. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it's somewhat that, you know, it, when they're the pups and calves, they have the you know, onboarding from lactation, they, they get the immune from the mom and the, uh, you know, your immune system. Um, mm -hmm. and then that kind of fades off a little bit and then you have to build it back up. So maybe there's something right. that has to do with that. Um, and also once know. you're an adult, especially if you're a female, you can offload a little bit of that as well, potentially. Right. right. So very so, interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, and it, it, it was interesting too, and we'll discuss it, but they, there really hasn't been that much information uh, looked into in age class differences. Yeah. In yeah. Other so which is really important because there's almost everything that you study in in things like this or like social structure stuff like that you look at age class because there's a lot of differences and maybe even particularly what they're eating depending on uh, on the species um, mm -hmm. so there's there are differences in age class on, on multiple different aspects of their lives so this would be one to look into yeah um so with that yeah so that's the, that's the results um which was very exciting mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, so the one the one bias here is which is important to remember is the fact that these are stranded animals and so anytime you do work with stranded animals it may not be fully representative of the population because these are stranded animals that died likely for a reason and they weren't normally are not super healthy individuals that just happened to wash up on the beach right so they're already diseased in some in in some way likely or or emaciated which then also has diseases and you know because opportunistic um, bacteria and other pathogens get in there because your immune system's down. Mm -hmm. um, but so that, that, that is a, a, a bias to the study because it is that that's, it's, um, towards disease animals. Um, but they did do in the analysis though, they did account for a lot of stuff. So it, it didn't affect the, what the analysis showed really. Right. Um, it's just important to remember in the grand scheme yeah. of things. Um, so this could be completely representative um, it might be a little bit more skewed towards it being higher than it really is in the overall population because we're looking at animals that stranded. Mm -hmm. um, but the important thing to remember too is that if um, these ones are, are, are good ones to look at because 
if your immune system's already down for whatever reason, more of these can get in there. So they are representative right. of, of that, where you have um, a, a lowered immune system, what does that look like? So even if you haven't stranded, if you have a lower immune system as you're, you're free ranging out there, are these going to get into you and then cause that to be worse? So maybe you could have gotten past whatever immune comprom compromising you had, but mm -hmm. now these opportunistic bacteria come in and it just tips, tips the, the balance and then you can't. Right. Yeah, exactly. So um, important thing to, to think about. Um, I thought it was interesting that the, uh, the, along those lines, these enterobacters, the intestinal bacteria that they looked at are not the number one pathogen. They're not the primary pathogen or the, sorry, they're not primarily pathogenic. My notes are not well-written. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, wait a second. No, they're not uh, usually the primary pathogen. Right. They're not right. usually the ones that go in and do that. They're secondary. They're again, like I just said, opportunistic where they're like, oh, that immune system's lower. I can slide in there because that one's not doing too well. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's more research underway to see how this affects mortality levels. Um, but again, it could have a huge impact if you're, if for another reason, like there's not enough food or there's other chemical pollutants that are reducing the animal's ability to have a good immune system. Now these are going to crop up more often. And so maybe that's also an indicator of, oh, if these are in really high levels, well, then that means that there's something else going on that's causing them to be susceptible to them. Right, exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, this, this study obviously is very specific, but equally the, like, you know, as we said at the, at the outset, the implications of this finding Huge. are extremely wide reaching. Like it's, it's really quite fascinating when you start thinking about just all the different levels that this could impact in terms of the animal's health, in terms of the population health, in terms of the wider ramifications for the ecosystem. Right. And perfect segue. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> um, so th basically they're saying that these marine mammals can be a reservoir for these multi-drug resistant um, uh, bacteria. And specifically for ones um, that are resistant to carpa Carbapenems. I was going to say I wasn't sure how to say that either. Yeah, I think that's it's. I, I think that's what it is. Carbapenem. Yeah. Carbapenem. I think. Um, so the issue there is that that and those ones are are in particularly important for humans because um, they are. Uh, where's my note? Uh, they are. Um, gosh darn it! They're the ones that that are pathogenic to. Yeah. Um, so though not treated by carba, car, carbapenems, marine mammals represent <laughs> potential reservoirs of multi-drug resistant bacterial strains potentially able to infect humans or other animals. And resistance to carbapenems is an ongoing global public health problem. So again, it's bad for them, but they could be basically pooling all this stuff that it could eventually get back to us through right. being zoonotic. Um, through and then spreading their genes through that the transfer, the transduction, you know, the, the conjugation and um, transformation and things like that. So yeah. they could be and spreading. This is it. also, sorry, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say this is also something that affects um, domestic animals and livestock. So that's another one that, you know, again, it's just this is this is something that's the implications of marine mammals being a potential reservoir are not just limited to humans, it's limited to your pets. It's, it's also right. inclusive of, you know, like, like I said, like farmed animals, livestock, cows, sheep, um, all could potentially be susceptible to this type of um, 
antibiotic resistant bacteria transfer. Yeah. Yeah, so this type of antimicrobial resistance, especially when mediated by gene transfer, which is like they said, the conjugation and transformation and transduction, is spreading rapidly, causing serious outbreaks and dramatically limiting treatment options in humans and domestic animals. So it's already a problem. Right. And we're now just making it Which is it worse. something that I, I really wasn't aware of that, I guess. I like either. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, obviously I know that anti antibiotic resistance is a huge problem globally, but like that specifically, I, I didn't know. So that was actually really interesting. Yeah, I didn't either. Like, I, I just, you know, I hear MRSA and that's right. <laughs> what I hear about. Like, yeah, okay. Um, so that, that was a really interesting side point um, or big point, actually. Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting is that uh, heavy metals, which are toxic in their own right, um, can contribute to selection for antimicrobial oh. resistance. Which is weird. mind blowing. I don't even know how. Like, right. I'm like, I don't right? even know how to I know. do it. <laughs> I know. I want to just now do like a ton more research on this. I'm just like, but why? I have so right? many questions. <laughs> I was like, I wish they put like a little sentence in there about why that happens, but that's not the scope of the paper. So I get why they didn't. But I'm like, how does it happen? But the fact is that it does. And what's really interesting is that Harbor Seals, there's been a, there was a, a, a paper years ago that looked at trace elements, um, including like heavy metals, uh, and showed there were just there were statistically significant differences by location and age class again mm -hmm. in harbor mm -hmm. seals so again it it's certain part certain areas might have worse problems <laughs> i know see cordelia doesn't like it either she says it's very sad right. um <laughs> so uh, it's really uh important that you know certain areas that maybe have higher level of heavy metal concentration <laughs> might actually be worse off for these antimicrobial um resistant bacteria yeah. And again, it might be an indication too, where like, okay, maybe we could use that as a way to start determining where other areas to research and other areas to study might be, might be good options. It's like, well, right. you know, if it's a co-selection thing that's actually happening, this can help to, to help to identify these locations where animals may be more at risk, or there may be more of a, um, a transfer through runoff water into the environment. So. Right. And then connecting that ecosystem level. So like, oh, let's, let's mm -hmm. take the water samples and the soil samples and marine mammal samples and fish samples and see, you know, how those things connect. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, and then, so the other one was that juveniles were, were more um, susceptible and we kind of talked about that. Um, and the fact that they, the age class really isn't studied well in, in this particular topic. So that's something that needs to be uh, looked at and worked on more. Um, but I think the most exciting thing for, uh, for us uh, was this last part um, that harbor porpoises are phylogenetically more related to orcas than say harbor seals are. Right. Uh, and so it's, uh, they can be a, uh, used as sentinels for southern resident killer whale health. Right. So Which, if, if these boom, guys are being a just mic drop right there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you should care about porpoises, people. Right. <laughs> if you didn't already have your reasons because they're awesome, and you right. really only care about orcas, hey, we still got you covered. This is why you should care about them as well. Uh, <laughs> so if, there's, if, it, if it is showing up more in these animals, that could have large implications for the southern oh. resident killer whales and what they are exposed to and what levels they may have that we don't know about. Um, right. And the biggest thing with the sentinel species is that it is something that typically shows the effects of whatever's going on in the environment faster, right? So that right. is one of the really cool things with the harbor porpoise is that you know, they reproduce yearly and they're resident to the area. So we know that they're being exposed to all these things on a regular basis. And so right. something that's very, very long lived, like an orca may not start to show the cumulative effects as quickly as something like a harbor porpoise would. 
Right, exactly. So super, super important for why we should care about porpoises, which I love yeah. that they yeah. put that in there. And plus, again, just the fact that it's like just for the porpoises themselves. And, you know, we are, you know, I think Stephanie Norman, the um, lead author on this paper, she is also doing a lot of work on. She cares about porpoises. Um, yeah, she really does focus on porpoises a lot, but she's doing a lot of work on um, specific bacterial infection and diseases that are affecting porpoises in this area as well. Mm -hmm. So it, this does have a lot of direct knock-on effects. If this is, you know, if anti, I keep, I keep second guessing myself for that name, antibiotic resistant bacteria. Right. I keep wanting to say antimicrobial. Um, I know. Well, that's true. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, if that is somehow affecting the immune system of the harbor porpoise in, in, at all, you know, that does have very, very big knock-on ramifications for just the overall health of the harbor porpoise population in this region, as well as the larger animals like the orcas. Right. Well, and then too, you know, for the transients too, they're eating porpoises. So yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, exactly. So like how, you know, are they getting a buildup that's greater because they're consuming the porpoises, which are potentially more likely to be exposed? It's, it's, yeah, so many questions. So many questions. So important. Um, yep. So Towards the end here, the um, so the environment is a reservoir for these resistant genes and dispersal vectors. So ways for the genes to get to other places, mm -hmm. and um, so they can spread. Um, as we talked about, they can spread through the environment without the selective pressure of antibiotics in the first place. So right. really important. Um, the last thing, which I thought was really cool, was that um, uh, the seagrass meadows. Oh yeah. So ecosystem connection again, keeping a healthy ecosystem helps us to keep healthy everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so seagrass meadows actually decrease the land sea transfer of uh, these pathogens. Right. And so th this is very similar to wetlands, right? Mm. So um, wetlands in uh, untrustful environments, they basically filter out stuff before it gets to the ocean. Right. It's kind of like a catchment area, basically. Right. And so these seagrass, um, seagrass areas are super important. And we've seen lots of seagrass die-offs in the Salish Sea recently, the declines. So if we can, you know, the, this stuff is still getting into the water. If we can keep these seagrass meadows healthy, then we could possibly reduce how much these animals are getting exposed to it. So yeah. lots of reasons to care from, you know, water treat, water quality to seagrass quality to porpoise quality. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, that, and like I said, you know, that's one of the coolest things with this paper is just the, the, as we said all the way through pretty much now at this point, but like just the implications of this are so much more broad reaching than just harbor porpoises and harbor seals. Like this really is talking about an ecosystem level problem right. that we are effectively causing. Right. Um, so it's, and it's that was pretty gonna, incredible. Can come back to bite us. Yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. Yep. Well, I think Cordelia's finished. I was going to say, I think that might have just been a little bit too depressing for Cordelia. She wasn't into that one as much. Yeah, she's like, um, I just woke up from my nap and now you're talking about like terrible ecosystem like failures and things. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that um, was that was the paper. Um, super cool. And uh, I think next week we will. Oh, this one is was it open access? I can't remember. Oh, I was just going to ask you. I think it is. Yeah, it is. No, the oceans, these, these papers are, are, it's in the same realm as the one we did for um, the asphyxiation paper that we talked about. Uh, oh, so those are all open perfect. access. So we'll put the link yep. in the, uh, in our little bio. Yep.
And yeah, definitely go check it out. And a huge thank you to the authors for doing such incredible work and um, for pursuing this because this is like such important information that just simply was not available before. So thank you to them for doing that. (laughs) Yeah, they did amazing work and it's gonna just lead to so much more that we can do and learn and understand and to help protect these animals. Yeah. So, all right, well, next week uh, we, or next time, sorry, we'll be doing a marine mammal highlight. So be sure to check out the Instagram poll to help us decide whether it's going to be the minky or somebody else. Yep. And we can find us at Pacific Mammal Research, all one word on Instagram and check out the Instagram stories for the poll. Yep. So with that, Cordelia says I'm done. (laughs) So we're going to, the life that revolves around a a 10 month old. That's what, that's where I'm at right now. (laughs) (laughs) So we will see you next time. All right. Bye. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Check out our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M, to learn more about us, our research, and the educational opportunities that we provide. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.